Well, as David said, last week our goal was to talk big picture about what the church is and what church membership is, because membership of the church isn't like membership at a shopping club or a gym or a country club. It is a vital, dynamic part of our Christian life as God intended it. Because when we become a Christian, we are adopted into the family of God, and even though that occurs individually, we're not intended to live individualistically because none of us are only children. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God, but you're not an only child of God. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a corporate relationship with the body of Christ. If you are a member of God's kingdom, then you are fellow citizens with the other members of God's kingdom. If you have been brought into the temple of the Holy Spirit, then you're just one piece of that temple that Christ is building with the Holy Spirit within it that is God's presence on earth. And so all of these things that Christ talks about, yes, he goes after the lost sheep, but then he does what? He brings it back into the flock. So God is about forming a community because God is a community. We worship a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is a community and who made us to live in community, which is why he made a man and a woman to have children. And then for that family to become an extended family, to become a clan, a tribe, a nation, a people, a culture, a civilization. God loves communities of diverse people loving in unity, living in unity. And that's what he is and who he what he does. Today what we want to do is talk about our particular church. And so everyone should be a member of a local church. And we are blessed in our town to have many delightful, healthy, Bible preaching, gospel preaching, wonderful churches to become a part of. And our desire is for you to be in the church that God wants you to be in. And so we're not trying to pull from any other church. We're not competing with any other church. But we do believe that every Christian should be an active, committed member of a local church because that's how we enjoy and express our membership in the universal church. And so what we want to do tonight, though, is to let you know about our church, who we are, where we've come from, some of our distinctives, our doctrines, where we're going, so that you can make an informed decision as you prayerfully say, God, what church would you have me be a part of? And the impetus... Of uh, I'm trying to think of the movie where they planted the memory. What was the name of that? Inception. The inception of Dina Community Church occurred on I-45, going southbound on New Year's Eve of 2017. So Nock and I were driving down to Houston to see her family for the holidays. The kids were asleep in the back seat, or so we thought. They let on that they were awake, uh, like they, I guess, off were more than we realized. <laughs> and Nock and I began to talk about, okay, our daughter's going off to college in a year. Our son is going off to college in two years. We're entering into a new season of life. And my wife, Nock, says, I want to do something significant with this next season of my life. I don't want to just garden more, jog more, play more. I've been well-trained. I've been well-equipped. I've had this primary ministry for the last two decades, and now I'm in, entering into the season where I'm going to have more time. I want to do something significant, something eternally significant. What if we planted a church? Now, unbeknownst to her, I have been having this growing idea of planting a church in my own mind. That as I was wrapping up a project for a foundation that I was on since 2014, that was always going to be a project, not a new profession. So as that was beginning to wind down, we thought, uh, I was praying, God, what would you have me do? And do I want to be bivocational or do I called to be a pastor? And as I would walk these streets and drive these streets in this neighborhood that I grew up in, 
God had been planting in my heart the idea of a local church here in this neighborhood. And so she voiced it, I echoed it, and then we began to talk about it. We began to text about it. And then we began to talk to my brother and my sister-in-law, Jennifer. And then we talked to some other people about what would it look like to plant a church here in the Dinian neighborhood, which is where we grew up. And so Alan Chamberlain moved here in 1967. Lyndall Beatty actually preceded him. When did you live on McCormick? So 1964, we actually have our oldest Dina resident in Lindell Bay. Uh, Dave and I grew up here. We went to the local elementary school here. We still live in this neighborhood. My folks live in this neighborhood. What would it look like to plant a church here in this community that would be a neighborhood church? And so we gathered a group of people in January. There were 12 of us in a living room. And we said, we're going to pray until Easter. God, is this something you would have us do? And we prayed and prayed and prayed. Easter came and went, and the answer seemed to be, not yet. And so we prayed. Some of those families found other churches in the interim. And in August, in Oklahoma, there were three of us, Alan Chamberlain, my brother and I, and we were again praying about forming this new church. And God seemed to give a resounding yes now. And so we came back and began to talk to families again about what would it look like to start a new work in this community. Uh, Alan and I went to Papa Mel and said, Papa Mel, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? And Mel Summerall, the founder of Dipper Bible Church, said, I think I got one more church plan in me. And Mel, at age 91, wanted to be a part of this new work, and he was a part of it from the beginning. And we prayed and we prayed and prayed. I had spent 15 years working at another local church in town. And we didn't want to do anything that would be perceived as divisive or competitive. So uh, I went to the head pastor and told him what I felt God called me to do. And he said, that's exactly what you should do. And he called a special meeting of the elders and they gave us uh, their blessing. And then he invited me six days later to come to the staff and to tell them what God had called us to do. And so God had smiled upon us. And then we began praying, God, would you let us meet in this church building? Because this is at the heart of our community. Dean is a very eclectic community. We have UNT professors and college students. We have people who are transitioning, some to America, some to the neighborhood. And over here we have PhDs, and over here we have GEDs. And at the crossroads is McCormick and Willow. And we just prayed, God, would you let us meet in this church? And so we asked, they asked some questions, they had to bring it through the various authority chains. And then they met here on a November night while Dave and I sat on the concrete cul-de-sac outside and prayed God's intervention. And God moved and they gave us permission to meet in this beautiful facility. And then we began having midweek meetings in homes. And the way we did it was a different family would host every week and the host family would tell their story, would give their testimony. And from the beginning, there was a transparency there was a vulnerability, there was an honesty that just knit people together as a community. And that was one of the distinctives of Dini Community Church. So as this early incipient church began to form, there were certain phrases and values and virtues that we wanted to be our distinctives as a church. And one of it was we wanted to be humble, we wanted to be transparent. A place that people could come as they are, whoever they are, without any need to keep up appearances, of any need of trying to impress anyone or uh, 
yeah, impress, to put up guises. And we just wanted to be humble and real that we're all sinners in various stages of sanctification and we need each other. We just want to come in raw, authentic, genuine, and real. We wanted it to be God-centered. And so we wanted God to be at the center of everything. We wanted it never to be about a gifted musician or wonderful programs or tremendous facilities or powerful preaching. We wanted God to get all the glory, all the focus, all the attention. And anything that distracted attention from God on demand was a bad thing. And so we wanted it to be God-centered from first to last. We wanted it to be servant-oriented. Where one, everybody was serving one another, but also where everybody was using their gifts to serve. That we never wanted a distinction between a professional clergy who was doing the work and a lady who was paying them to do the work. But every person who has the Holy Spirit has a spiritual gift and has a role in the body of Christ. And the body's only healthy when all of those people are working. And so we wanted a mutually serving church. Uh, we wanted something that was, the phrase we used was, no games, just church. Again, we didn't want any fog machines, any laser lights, any glossy, you know, no, no pastors and $6,000 sneakers. No, anything other than to be a community that is a family and that everybody was welcome. Whoever they are, whatever they come from, everybody would be welcomed and embraced and used and incorporated. Everybody would be equal. Everybody would be serving together. We wanted to be a neighborhood church. And so we wanted to have a community that would focus on a particular neighborhood to make it better, to make it brighter, to be a blessing to that community. And so there's 34 plus schools in Denton ISD, but we were going to focus on Borman because it's our school. It's a third of a mile away. It's the second lowest rated school in Denton ISD, or it was a couple years ago when we formed. And every school would be blessed to have a church helping it, but that's our school. So we wanted to be involved there. We wanted to clean up our streets. We wanted to help our neighbors, whether with ESL classes, or tutoring, or life skills, or uh, immigration attorneys, whatever the need was, we wanted to make this neighborhood better because of Jesus. And what would it look like to be in the streets and in the parks and in the school? And we began eating at local restaurants. And we began trying to take more walks and meet more neighbors. And we began to dream, what would it look like to have a church family on every street, like an RA on every dorm floor? And they would get to know that street and they would pray for those people. And they would start meeting their needs and inviting them to church. And then people began moving into the neighborhood. And so Connie moved into the neighborhood, and Sam moved into the neighborhood, and David Jen moved into the neighborhood, and uh, Sam and Ashley moved into the neighborhood. And then one of the early blessings God gave us was there were people here, these beautiful Christians that had been here for years and years, that we had just never come across before. And so there were David Jan Sims, and there was Scott and Teresa Price, and we just began to form a cluster of families. And again, people were welcome to come from everywhere. But the focus of our outreach would be this particular community. But the heart of it was love. The heart of Dina is love. And we took the two great love commandments of the Old Covenant. That Jesus, when asked, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of the prophets. On this hang all the law of the prophets. And then, at the Upper Room Discourse, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, 
Love one another as I love you. Talking to his disciples. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so those three great love commandments, loving God wholeheartedly, loving our neighbor selflessly, loving our Christian brothers and sisters sacrificially, became the drumbeat of Dini Community Church. It's on our shirts. It's behind our sign that everything we do want to be either an expression of our love for God or a way of increasing our love for God. An expression of our love for a neighbor or a way of increasing our love for a neighbor. An expression of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ or a way of increasing our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We wanted to be the most loving place in town. Because if we did everything else right, if we had great kids programs, if we had powerful singing, if we had wonderful preaching, if we had wonderful facilities, but we had not love, what is that according to Paul? But even if we got other things wrong, and even if there were other things that were slower in developing, if we got love right, then we were doing right. Because what we wanted from the very beginning was a healthy church. Not a big church, not a flashy church, not a church that would get a number of hits on a website. We wanted to be a healthy family of loving people who are helping each other love God, love one another, love our neighbors, and to form such a compelling community that our neighbors want to come and join. That this fire gets so warm, that this light gets so bright, that everyone around says, what's going on there? And our answer would be, well, it's what God is doing in us because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Come be a part of it. Come join the family. Give yourself to Christ. Come be a part of this. And then they would go out and do likewise. And then big picture, we always saw from the very beginning that people from this church would now go and plant other churches that would likewise embed in a neighborhood meet their neighbors, get to know the schools, play with their kids in the parks, eat at the local restaurants, go to the local grocery stores, and start making that neighborhood bright for Christ. And then where we are in North Texas, not far from Dallas Theological Seminary and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Criswell Bible College and then DFW, we wanted other people to come here and to see a living model of a church that was trying to do things right, that was trying to be humble and holy, that was trying to be faithful and fruitful, that was trying to be loving and servant-hearted, that was keeping God at the center of everything so that we could teach them, train them, and then hopefully send them out to go and do likewise, and that this would begin to replicate into a new model of church. And that's the heartbeat of Dina still today, is we want to be the most loving place in town because our God is love. And we want to love all indiscriminately because God loves us indiscriminately. We want to love unconditionally because God loves us unconditionally. We want to be an intergenerational family because that's the family of God. We didn't want to segment into silos based on state, season of life or age or interest. But we wanted to be a diverse family that glorifies God in our unity in the midst of all our diversity. And on December 22nd, 2018, we had our first church service here on Christmas Sunday. And then we began to meet every Sunday since. And so that has been the history of Dini Community Church. And since then, God has just brought beautiful person after beautiful person, beautiful couple after beautiful couple, amazing family after amazing family. And it's been wonderful if you've been a part of this. Now, one question that you may not know the answer to is, what the heck is Dina? And why Dina? So Dina is the nickname of Eugenia Razor. So Newton Razor was a local businessman who donated much of the property for schools and other parks and rec and other facilities in Denton. 
So Razor Ranch is Newton Razor. Newton Razor Elementary School is Newton Razor. And his wife, Eugenia, whose nickname was Dina, he named the, this uh, park center that he donated after his wife, and the city officially designated this the Dina neighborhood. So we thought about calling ourselves Dina Bible Church or Dina Bible Community Church, but we ended up with Dina Community Church because we are a community in the Dina community to reach that community for Christ. So here we are tucked away in the southwest corner of Denton. And if we can move one more map. According to the city of Denton, this is the boundaries of Denia. And it's 35 East, Bonnie Bray, and 377, and Roselawn. And so right here at the heart of it, if you just go about, uh, it's a four-mile circumference that you can walk in an hour or jog at half that, depending on your pace. And so that's the heart of the Denia community. A little bit broader, it's in what we call the Deniahood, which is 35 East, 35 West, 377, and then becoming vintage over 377 curves round. And all of that lovely blank space is filling up. So within the next two years, there will be a thousand new homes within one mile of where we're sitting tonight. And that's just the beginning of the growth that's coming. And so there was already a need for a church in this community, but God got us here just in time to welcome in all the new families that are coming. And then as you look into the shadow of Denia, there's Denton County's only orphanage, and there's Denton County's only mosque, and there's 40,000 college students. And then here's all this wonderful diversity that God has placed here that we have an opportunity to reach as the community of Christ. And so that's why we are Denia. Questions so far about our history and some of our distinctives before we move into some of our doctrines. All right. But what I want to do is to walk you through some samples from our bylaws and constitution to let you know a little bit about who we are and what we believe. So again, you can make a good decision about whether or not God would have this be your church. Here's how we began our bylaws. Having been called by God from Dean Community Church in Denton, Texas, we adopt this constitution and bylaws as our articles of governance. They are to be interpreted at all times in ways that glorifies God, obeys Jesus, pleases the Spirit, accords with Scripture, and agrees with this church's articles of incorporation. Now, our identity is this congregation of believers in Jesus Christ shall be known as Denia Community Church. And Denia is an independent, self-governing entity with no official connection to any outside body. So we're not a church plant from any other church. We're not a part of any church planting network. We're an independent congregation that we want to collaborate and cooperate with other churches. So we think that that's the model of the New Testament is independent churches that work together for the common cause of Christ. Next, we define ourselves as a spiritual family of saved sinners who love God, one another, and others. Because we love God, we trust, obey, adore, exalt, study, serve, worship, and pray to Him, and desire others to do the same. Because we love one another, we serve, encourage, edify, support, 
pray for and fellowship with one another and help each other grow in holiness, faith, and love. And because we love others, our neighbors, we serve them, pray for them, share the truth of God's word and the good news of Jesus Christ with them, and invite them to join God's family. In reliance on the Holy Spirit, we prayerfully strive to make disciples of Jesus Christ who glorify God by loving him, one another, and others in accordance with Scripture until our Lord returns to reunite us with God forever. So that's who we are and why we think God has placed us here. Legally, DCC is a nonprofit corporation according to the laws of the state of Texas. So we made an intentional decision not to become a federal 501c3 because America is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and the church. If the Equality Act, so-called, passes the Senate, we're going to see some radical changes for Christian institutions in America. And so from the beginning, we wanted to prepare ourselves organizationally for tougher times to come. And it's easier for us to deal with a representative in the Senate in Austin than what's going on in D.C. And Texas, you know, if we were in California, it might be different, but Texas being where it is, it's going to be turning left slower than D.C. and the rest of the country. So what that means practically is that people are still able to make tax-deductible contributions, but we can't make tax-deductible purchases. So I pay eight and a quarter percent more on buying copy paper and we thought that was a wise trade-off to be able to just head ourselves off from where we think the country's going. Now, with regards to our doctrine, our beliefs, our convictions, to promote unity and transparency, we have three levels of these. We have foundational doctrines that identify us with the one holy, Catholic, apostolic church that exists in all places and ages. An agreement with these foundational doctrines is required to volunteer at DCC. So the church has been around since Pentecost in around 33 AD. And ever since then, whether you're Eastern Hemisphere, Western Hemisphere, North, South, 1st century, 21st century, that is the Church of Jesus Christ. And the common expression of faith of the Church of Jesus Christ is summarized in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed of 381. And so we are identifying ourselves with this great legacy, with this great heritage, with this universal, invisible, invisible, international Church of Christ. But then we have fundamental doctrines that associate us with the Protestant evangelical tradition. So the universal church is typically broken into three main branches, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. And then within Protestantism, there's a broad division between liberalism and evangelicalism. And so we are now identifying ourselves as Protestant evangelicals. And there's certain convictions that are common of that tradition. And then there are certain distinctive doctrines that the leadership of Dini Community Church needs to hold. So to be a member of uh, Dini Community Church, we just want you to affirm the fundamental doctrines that are consistent with evangelical Protestantism. But if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be teaching from the pulpit, then we want you to have an even closer unanimity of doctrine and agreement so that there's a consistency of pastoral care, a consistency of teaching and preaching. So does that make sense, the three levels? We're identifying ourselves with the church at large. We're part of this particular branch. 
And then so that people know where we stand on these issues that separate, not necessarily divide, but distinguish, differentiate evangelicals, we want everyone to know where we stand on these. So let's walk through those briefly. In unity with the historic universal church, we affirm the foundational doctrines confessed in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. So the Apostles' Creed goes back to the second century in what was called the Old Roman Symbol. This is the earliest confession that we have as a church, and it's in the first person, I believe, because this is what you would say when you were baptized. This was your personal conviction, your personal confession, your personal testimony of what you as an individual were believing and affirming and attesting to as you entered into the body of Christ. And if the text isn't too small, why don't we just confess this together as a reminder of what we believe. That I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And for two millennia, Christians all around the world have been confessing this. And we're proud to make that our confession as well. The more universal confession, though, that's a little bit fuller is the Nicene Creed that was given in 381. And so um, we're not going to read through it uh, at this time, but it's probably familiar to most of you. It's an expansion of the Apostles' Creed. Moving then to the fundamental doctrines, in unity with Protestant evangelicals, we affirm the following fundamental doctrines. First, we believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God, whose 66 books are the primary source and the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. If you're looking for the word inerrant, it comes in the next section because there are some evangelicals who don't believe that. So we are identifying within that, but we do believe in inerrancy as well. But that's our foundation of our faith, is God's word. We believe that God is the one true God who exists as a trinity of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully divine, yet there is only one God. The triune God is eternal and immutable, unchanging, omnipotent and omniscient, all-powerful and all-knowing, transcendent outside of creation, imminent within creation, compassionate, gracious, holy, and loving. He is the sovereign creator, the gracious redeemer, the righteous judge. God's natural and moral perfections, as well as his creative and redemptive works, make him alone worthy of our wholehearted adoration, allegiance, and obedience. This is what we believe of God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary to be fully human while remaining fully divine. He was the promised Messiah in the second Adam, who lived a perfect life as humanity's representative and died an atoning death as sinner's substitute. 
He was resurrected bodily from the grave and ascended into heaven, where he reigns as Lord and intercedes as high priest. When Christ returns, he will defeat God's enemies, judge the living and the dead, hand over the kingdom to God the Father, and then dwell with the redeemed forever. Isn't that glorious good news? I mean, th this is uplifting just to remind ourselves of what we believe. We believe the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who regenerates, baptizes, seals, sanctifies, gifts, guides, illumines, empowers, comforts, helps, and produces his fruit in believers. He indwells both the church as a whole and every individual believer who are commanded to live and walk, to be led and to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Humans are made in God's image and therefore possess inherent dignity and worth from conception until death. God makes humans either male or female at conception and confines sexual activity to a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. Humanity's purpose is to glorify God by loving him wholeheartedly and serving him faithfully. Adam's disobedience resulted in humanity's condemnation and corruption so that every person is born spiritually dead, alienated from God, subject to sin, and unable to save themselves. But in love, the Father accomplished salvation through the virgin birth, representative life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. Salvation involves union with Christ, propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, justification, God's declaration that we are righteous because of Christ, forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, redemption from sin and death and hell and Satan, regeneration that we are born from above and become new creations in Christ, adoption into God's family, reconciliation with God the Father. Salvation is applied by the Holy Spirit to those who repent of their sins and embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone. Salvation is confirmed by an orthodox gospel confession, the internal witness of the Spirit, and the testimony of a transformed life evidenced by increasing holiness and love. God makes us more and more like Jesus. So we become more and more holy. We become more and more loving. And that's part of the affirming testimony that we truly belong to him. Christians are sanctified positionally, progressively, and perfectly. Positionally, God consecrates believers by identifying them with himself and setting them apart for himself. In this sense, every Christian is a saint, someone set apart by God as holy to live a holy life and to fulfill a holy purpose. Progressively, God calls and causes Christians to grow in holiness, conforming them to the image of Christ and producing in them the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ultimately, God will perfect his children in holiness and resurrect them in glorified bodies, Christians are expected to live in Christ-like holiness, obedience, and love through the Holy Spirit and to confess and repent of our sins when we don't. Scripture summarizes sanctification as wholehearted love for God, Christ-like love for Christians, and selfless love for others. The church is the family of God, the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is comprised of regenerate, born-again Christians who receive spiritual gifts to edify the church in unity and love. 
Membership in the universal church is enjoyed and expressed through committed, active participation in a local church community. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded us. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. The New Testament establishes two ordinances for the church, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. The Lord's Supper is to be observed regularly in remembrance of Christ's atoning death, in celebration of his communion with his church, and in anticipation of his return. Baptism symbolizes a, convert, a convert's repentance, salvation, consecration, and cleansing, and indicates his or her identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus and his or her incorporation into the body of Christ, the church. Water baptism is obligatory, but not salvific. So Christ commands it, we obey it, but we're not saved by baptism. Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead and will righteously consign every soul to either eternal bliss or eternal judgment. The blessed hope of the church is to live forever on the new earth in glorified bodies in the glorious, loving presence of the triune God. That's the big picture of the Bible. That's the grand redemptive history of Scripture. And that's what we believe as Protestant evangelicals. Now we want to move to our distinctives that among Protestant evangelicals, there are differences of opinion on certain doctrines. We just want to be completely upfront about what we believe on these. First of all, we believe in the verbal plenary inerrancy of Scripture which means that the entirety of the Bible, including every word of the autographs, the original writings, is inspired by God and therefore completely accurate and without error in everything that it asserts is true. So the Bible from first to last is inspired by God and therefore completely authoritative and accurate without error in any detail. We hold to a reformed view of the total depravity of fallen humanity the sovereign grace of God and salvation, and the eternal security of the redeemed. So we believe that we were born as, as sons and daughters of Adam, alienated from God, and that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We can't merit our salvation, we can't accomplish it, we can't contribute to it in any way. And so salvation is a sovereign work of God that he graciously does in us, but we add nothing to that. And once saved, always saved. That you cannot lose your salvation because it is accomplished by Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in a Church of Christ or a Methodist or a Nazarene tradition, then that's different than what your doctrinal statement says. They believe that you can lose your salvation and then you need to repent and believe again and be saved again. But we believe that the teaching of Scripture is that once you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Not even yourself. We believe, with regards to church government, in an elder-ruled church polity, which believes that the church government best-fitting scripture is for each local church to be self-governed by a plurality of biblically qualified elders. So we don't believe in different levels of a church hierarchy with a bishop and then a presbytery and on down. We believe the New Testament is a group of independent congregations that cooperate, that collaborate, that communicate, that help, but they're each independently governed. And that that is done by the office of elder. And so the senior pastor is not the miniature pope. He's not the local jefe. 
He is the senior, the first among equals, of a group of elders who together shepherd the flock of God as the Holy Spirit appoints them to do. We believe that believer's baptism by immersion is performed in obedience to Christ and not to affect salvation. So if you were Anglican or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Lutheran or Presbyterian, you might have been baptized as an infant, but we believe that the model of the New Testament is being baptized when you repent and believe, which means you need to be in age to understand the gospel, receive the gospel, and then the baptism is the visible expression of that conversion. We hold to a premillennial view of the end times, which means that Christ will come back and reign on earth for a thousand years, and that there's a future for the nation of Israel before we enter into eternity. We hold a cautious view of the sign gifts, which does not deny the possibility that tongues, prophecies, and healings might occur, but insists that they be practiced and interpreted biblically, as well as be tested to see whether they are indeed from God. First John says, test the spirits to see if they are from God. Now, as we as elders talk through these doc doctrines, when we first did this in 2019, this was the most controversial topic. When we revisited it today, this was the most controversial subject, so let me add just a couple more words on that. You may be familiar with the phrase, the terms continuist or cessationist. So there are those in the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions that believe that the sign gifts of speaking in tongues, of prophecy, and of miraculous healings, the gift of healing on a person to heal, continue today as they did in the first century. And that's a continuationist. A cessationist believes that those gifts ended normally in the first century with the death of the last apostle. So they were given for a season to affirm Christ and his apostles, but with the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament canon, that now the sign gifts, as they're called, have ceased. And then there's different versions in between. So I personally do not believe that the sign gifts continue today in the way that they did in the first century. I've not witnessed that, I've not experienced that, and the testimonies that I've seen and read of it don't lend me to believe that that is what is going on in the church today. But other people have had those experiences, and other people have seen things that they think that is what they've witnessed. And I can't make an exegetical case that the sign gifts ended at the first century. So I can make an historical case for that, I can make a doctrinal case for that, I can make a personal practical case for that, but I can't make an exegetically airtight case for that. And therefore, that leaves me open. And even if one did believe that the sign gifts ceased, one would need to be open to the fact that they might begin again. But the Bible gives very strict parameters of what that looks like. In the case of tongues, one at a time, with an interpreter, two or three at most, and again, under the governance of the church authorities that are governing its doctrine, its practice, making sure that it's leading to peace and concord, not division and chaos, because God is a God of order, not of chaos. So there are rules and regulations that the New Testament gives, and that's why we phrase this the way that we have. Finally, ending on another divisive subject, <laughs> we hold to a complementarian view of gender roles, which affirms the equal value and dignity of men and women but recognizes a divinely ordained distinction in their roles in the church and family as defined by scripture. So there are many Christian traditions today that are what are called egalitarian, and they would say that every role and function and office in the church is open to men and women. 
But the Bible says that God does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And because we believe that the Bible is the word of God and is our source of all practice and teaching in the church, that's what we affirm as well. We don't believe that that has any derogatory connotation about the value and worth of women. No more so that the Bible commands children to submit to their parents, but that doesn't mean children are of less worth than their parents. I'm commanded to submit to my governing authorities, but that doesn't mean that politicians are worthy are more worthy than I am. Or the example I gave in our sermon series on ecclesiology, the fact that God said only the Levites could work in the temple didn't mean that the Danites and the Ephraimites and the Judahites were any less in God's eyes. And the fact that only the Kohathites could actually serve in the temple proper doesn't mean that the Gershonites and the... Gergesites? Is it the... Kohathites? Oh, that's bad. The three main groups of Levites, only one of them could come in. But that doesn't mean that the others weren't equal valuable. It's just that's the way that God arranged things. So to be different than isn't to be less than. And the truth is that we are all under some authority, and we all exercise some authority. And Christ is our model of how to exercise authority. So husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that Christ is also our model of submitting to authority. That he came to do not his will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And even when it meant something, I mean, he was sweating bloody tears. Father, if it be possible, but not my will, but thine. So the reality is, God is a God of order, and he establishes hierarchy and authority out of love to create harmony and peace. And we are all under submission, we all exercise submission, and that's how it plays out in the church as well. DCC volunteers are expected to affirm the foundational doctrines affirmed or confessed in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. So a church in Sherman had some people who were Muslims and Buddhists wanting to volunteer in their children's care, and they said no, and that's right. Uh, you can help in other ways. We'll do Keep America Beautiful Together. We can do other things. But in the church, if you're volunteering, you're at least a part of the broad Christian confession. To be a member or an employee we ask that you hold to the foundational doctrines of an evangelical Protestant. And if you were Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or liberal, you wouldn't want to subscribe to the other doctrines anyway. But if you're going to be an elder or teaching staff, then we ask that you hold all three levels of doctrine. Because again, if someone comes and says, Pastor, I'm afraid that I've lost my salvation, they need to get the same counsel on that issue, whether it's me or David or and if we're preaching on a text that has to do with eschatology, whether I'm up here or Brian is up here, there should be a consistency in the way that we interpret Scripture on that doctrine. Even though we're proud to call other brothers and sisters who differ with us on that issue, they just see it differently. But there's importance of consistency in the teaching and the shepherding here. Finally, this is how we conclude. Dean Community Church in general, and its elders in particular, are obligated to teach and practice whatever the Bible reveals and commands. We don't take polls. We're not trying to see what's trending or what's popular or what would make it easier for us. If God says it, we must teach it. If God commands it, we must obey it because we're under his authority. Under Christ's headship, the DCC elders have the ultimate authority and final decision in all matters of interpretation relating to the doctrine, practice, policy, and discipline of DCC. Alteration of any DCC doctrine can be made only by the elders and must be announced to the church. 
God is Dini Community Church's ultimate authority in all matters. And he has revealed his truth and his will in his inspired and inerrant Bible. Therefore, at no time and for no reason will DCC deny, alter, neglect, or disobey any clear teaching of Scripture, no matter what civil authorities may legislate or public pressure attempt to compel, for we must obey God rather than men. It doesn't matter where the country goes, we're fixed. It doesn't matter where the culture goes, we're fixed. And it may be that there's going to be increasing hostility and persecution and prices to pay for that, and that will be okay, because that's what Christians have been doing ever since there has been a church. But as for us, we will obey God because we fear Him, we love Him, we adore Him, our allegiance to Him, and our ultimate authority is King Jesus and not anyone on earth. So questions or comments about the history the distinctives or the doctrines of Dinia Community Church. Oh, Charles. These are going to be on the internet. These are going to be, yeah. Everyone, we're going to get copies of these to everyone to read, to look at, and then these will be uploaded soon. Yeah. As a perspective and not a doctrine, questions about yeah. More questions about size. Yeah. So the question is, uh, what about number of services and size? So our desire is to be a community. And we never want to grow bigger than we can be a community. You know, there's no magic number than what that is. Uh, but one time I was driving with a group of pastors down to a Mark Dever conference at uh, Criswell Bible College, and we were talking about this among ourselves. And there seemed to be between 350 and 750, depending on the community, the number of elders, the structure. But at some level, when we don't recognize one another, when we don't know one another, when we can't be a family together, then we've gotten too big. And then it's a time to plan another church. Because we think that the healthier model is not to have a bigger, 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 bigger church with more services, but more healthy churches embedded into local neighborhoods. I think it was Bob who told me, we want to make rabbits, not be an elephant. So we don't want to just keep getting bigger and bigger. We want to be rabbits that plant more churches. Now, as far as the number of services, you know, again, we do have limited facilities. Our goal would be to be a single-service church. Or if there were somehow a need for more, is there a way for that to each be a community? But our desire would be to be a single-service church of no larger size than we can be a family community. And once we've reached that threshold, it's time to plan another church. Bob? Have you all discussed uh, where we would plan a church? Would it be another church in Denton yeah. or DFW? So, so the question is, where would we plant another church? And really, with 15,000 homes coming to Cole Ranch and Hunter Ranch, I don't know why we wouldn't have churches in each of those neighborhoods. And so I think right now our desire would be to plant churches in North Texas that we would be close enough to help, to resource, to support, to collaborate with, but would be embedded with these new communities as they come in. Carrie? If you planted a church, would it be um, affiliated with us or would it be independent? So the question is, if we planted a church, would it be affiliated with us or independent? The answer would be, there would be a relational affiliation but it would be an independent congregation. 
And so we don't believe in a hierarchy of mother church that are having subordinate churches underneath it, but they would be an independent church with its independent elder board making decisions for themselves. But our goal would be to help them any way that we can. So even as we've structured the doctrinal statement, as we've talked to ministry heads, the desire is, how do we make this scalable? How do we make this something that we can franchise? How do we make this something where people come in here, spend a couple of years here while they're going to Bible college or seminary, get practical ministry experience, and then we send them out and bless them any way that we can? And if we get two, three, four of those, why wouldn't we collaborate on mission trips or on outreach events or on various uh, events that we might host? So again, we think a network of independent churches is the New Testament model, but all working together as one. Yeah. We're not. So we are a Texas nonprofit because the, those the, the primary difference, practically <coughs> speaking, is we can't make tax-deductible purchases. So contributions are tax-deductible, but the purchases we make, if we buy software, hardware, we pay tax on that. Okay. And again, the reason for that is seeing where the country and the culture are going, thinking that we would rather have be a drive away from Austin to talk to... Uh, I just forgot the vet who's our representative. Lynn Stuckey. Lynn Stuckey. Then trying to get on a plane to D.C. and enter into the swamp. Because the swamp. Would be D.C., correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah so, so government rules or executive orders that can apply at a federal level, we would be exempt from as a state organization. Yeah. On that same matter, so, I mean, I love that idea. Yeah. That's it. You at least as we've talked to our accountants our, too easy. but as we've talked to our accountant attorney and other pastors that that's what we've been told wow so most people just default well i'm a church i've got to be a c3 and didn't even know it was really an option but i think increasingly we're going to see people looking at other options particularly those of us who are blessed to live in more conservative states they're going to have more leeway and again, if we were in California or Maryland or Massachusetts, it might be different. But at least in Texas, uh, it's going to be favorable for us longer, we think. Yeah. Is our relationship with Willowwood uh, permanent? So the question is, is our relationship with the Willowwood and the Church of the Nazarene permanent? We don't know. But it would excite me if it were. So I personally am so encouraged to see the Willowwood Church of the Nazarene, Dini Community Church on the front of the sign, and behind it, our shared goal is to help people love God, one another, and others. And we fellowship together, and we help one another, the facilities are shared, but we don't, have, we don't know that that's going to be the case. And so we're looking at options should that not be possible, we're considering other possibilities, but we like the idea of being able to share facilities for as long as we can, as long as God allows No, yeah. Um, so you had said that you felt like this neighborhood uh, needed this church, and I'm not saying that it doesn't, but there is Willowwood, there are three churches within yeah. this area, there's also the Hispanic church that does yeah. meet here. What makes CCC different, or why CCC is needed here when yeah. those are here? So the question was, we have several other churches in the neighborhood, so Eagle Point, Assembly of God, Templo Vida Nueva, uh, Spanish-speaking church, the Church of the Nations that meets here in the afternoon, Willowwood Church of the Nazarene, 
and then the Calvary Chapel Church of Christ, which is now Hill City. So why plant another church in this neighborhood? I actually looked at all of those other churches to see if I could join them in their efforts before I looked at starting a new church here. And so one of the things is the will of a church is aging and declining. And so they're now less than uh, 50 people, most of whom don't live in this neighborhood. I spoke with the pastor of the Assembly of God Church, and again, I just can't sign that doctrinal statement. And he said, even though they're the largest Assembly of God Church in the county, very, very few come from this neighborhood. Most of them are those who affiliate with that denomination or that tradition, so they drive in there, but they're not reaching this neighborhood. Tipulera is Spanish, and so that's not going to reach the English speakers. The Spanish-speaking church, the Spanish-speaking, isn't going to reach this. So we felt there was a need of a Bible-preaching, disciple-making church that was really trying to reach this community. Because the existing churches, by their own admission, weren't reaching into this community. But it's an excellent question. But I've met those pastors, and we have invited them to different events, and we would very much want to co-labor with them. And if someone were to come here on a Sunday from an Assembly of God or Pentecostal tradition, I'd be eager to recommend them to Eagle Point if it wasn't a good fit here. If someone came, so I, I don't view it as competition, but as extra labor for the shared field. I attend, I'm involved, why do I have to become a member? Great question that we're wrestling with as well. Partly is, given the biblical model of what a church member looks like, how is that expressed in today's culture? And so part of today's legal environment is, for us to be the church, we need members to identify with the church so that we can obey the commands God gives us about enforcing holiness, and having expectations for one another. Part of it is a way of countering the American cafeteria culture of, I've got my kids in their this youth program, I like that preaching service, we go here, and the reality is people are taking from a number of places, but they're not committed to one. And even though there wasn't church membership agreements in the first century, there were committed Christians within a local body. And we see them being disciplined here, removed here, helping each other here, and for us as elders to know how we can answer to God for the souls that we're accountable for, we need to know who's in and who's out. And so to protect the teaching, to protect the kids and who we have as volunteers, there's things that we're needing to do structurally now that maybe weren't needed 50 years ago, but in the culture that we are in today, I think they're more important now than they were in when you and I grew up in church. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you covered this and I missed it, John, but in regard to the membership, what would be the, the uh, perspective on financials of the church? 
So the question is, uh, what will be the perspective on the financials of the church? Meaning, uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Budgets, uh, yeah. commitments, uh, you know. For instance, if for some reason the arrangement with Willowood went away, yeah. is there a plan B for another facility? And how yeah. do you get to that? So the question is, if the arrangement with the Willowood uh, went away, is there a plan B? And the answer is that we have been uh, saving all the excess money that God has been generous to donate just in case of that eventuality. So we've been looking at several different pieces of property. We've approached property owners, and we're actually considering purchases, whatever happens with the Willowood. And so this isn't the only basket that we have our egg in, but we'd love to be here as long as God would let us. I may not have answered your question, though. No, you did. Okay. It was a, it was a, it was, yeah, I was just throwing out questions. <laughs> <laughs> you got the problem. So God wants every Christian to contribute to his church. And the way that we acknowledge that all that we have comes from God is we give a portion of that back to God. And then under the stewardship of the leaders of the church, that's used for building up the church, benevolence to the church family, and then benevolence to the community and investment in missions. God has been very generous with this church. And what we've done so far is primarily save all that excess to make preparations for a future home if we can't stay here. Maybe you're, we have one more week this last one. We do. What, what about a church discipline? Do you sound more? So the question is, the question is, what about church discipline? That's next week. So next, we started big church, big membership. Now we're looking at this church. And next week, we're going to look about what does it actually mean to be a member? How does one become a member? What are the rights and responsibilities of a member? What does it mean to covenant with one another in membership? What does church discipline look like? All that's next week. Because it was, we're out of time now, and it's just too much. Yes? So the question is, how do you leave a church? And what does it mean to come to a church that may be a little bit further away? And so a factor in choosing a church should be location. Because if you're driving 45 minutes to a church, you can't really be involved in that church. And there are people that will drive 45 minutes or more to attend a church, but that's really what you do is you attend that church. So my encouragement in general is you want to be as proximate as you can so you can be as involved as you can as a general rule. Now, within a city, that may not be a big deal, but certainly moving between cities, that's a factor. Leaving a church should not be done lightly. And you should really ask yourself, what are my motives? And if there are genuine reasons that I feel are pulling me away from that church, uh, have I brought that up with leadership? Have I tried to be a part of the solution rather than just simply leaving? And I would say that if you feel led to leave a church, you should dialogue with your leadership. And... That looks differently in different churches, depending on the size of the church. Typically what I counsel someone is, in the chain of command in your church, go to the highest one that you have a relationship with. 
So some churches, they can approach the head pastor. For some, it might be an elder. For some, it might be a ministry head. But have a conversation with, I'm thinking about leaving because, and talk that through with them. And for some, there's a negative reason I'm feeling pushed from this. And then have you voiced that? Have they had a chance to address that, explain that? Have you had a chance to solve that? Sometimes it's a pull too. And I really feel drawn here for this reason, for this season. And I think God can reassign people for that reasons. But again, then you would say, Lord, if you're leading me to leave, how do I leave well? And how do I do it in a loving, non-divisive way? that I'm not going to badmouth, criticize, or critique the church that I'm leading, but I'm going to communicate with them honestly, transparently, and then if the Lord leads us to here, either because there are legitimate reasons for us to leave here or legitimate reasons to come here, how do we do that in a, a non-divisive way, in a loving way with integrity? And I'm happy, uh, I was asked in this last week, you know, would I be willing to talk to pastors of other churches that people might come from, and I'm more than happy to do and there are many people who have started here and then have gone to other churches, and we understand that as well. So I think each person will often explore a few churches in an area and then commit to one. And that's the main thing, is don't always be dating. You know, explore, <laughs> situate, and then commit yourself to that local body. Did I answer your question? Yeah. And if there's more specific things, I'm happy to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I'm going to ask one more thing. Absolutely. So the question is, how do you really know that God is calling you to something different? And I think on a lot of that, like most of what is God's will questions, the real work is in honestly laying our decision before the Lord. Of actually coming to the point, to the best that I can, God, I only want what you want. And I've considered this, I've weighed this, we've sought counsel, we've had these conversations, and then you go to God and say, God, what would you have of me? And I think he leads, that when we come to him with that earnest heart, that when we, make, when we submit our ways to the Lord, he makes our ways straight. And at least in my life, uh, I think that's how, how God moves. I earnestly seek, I honestly ask, I see, is there any biblical scriptures informing this? I get counsel, I have conversations, and then the Lord leads me, and I, I know his will. Yeah. Maybe one more, and then we're over already. I, I was just going to encourage on the membership side. For me, it's I'm willing to be under the authority of the church, which yeah. is the elders. And then when I travel, I've, I've got the covering of Denia Community Church as I go into Guatemala or Columbia. Yeah. And so when they're asking me, who, you know, who's your covering from, I can always go back. It's Denia. And you've been to Columbia, so you, you know what that means, the importance of that means. So here in the States, I think that we need to commit to be, agree to be under the authority yeah. of who God has placed as leaders in our church. So Bob was saying that it's a blessing to be under the authority of a church and to be under the umbrella of a church when you travel center. And for some reason we balk at this from the church, but again, if your children played sports, they would join a team and be under the authority of a coach. If your kids enroll in a school, 
they would be committed to that school and be the authority of the teacher and the administration. When you become an employee of a company, you're under a hierarchy and you're under the authority of that company and there's a commitment made there. We do this in every other life and then somehow when we talk about the church, people are like, wow, why would they ask that? And this is the way the world works because God is God of order, not of chaos. And he does this in families, he does this in schools, in governments, in jobs, and he does this in churches. That we commit to one another to love and serve one another. And even when we disagree and get cross and have grievances, we overcome them, we reconcile, we forgive, and we continue on as the family, because that's what family does. Jeremy, last one. I was just going to make a comment. That's right. Like we are a seed here. And so it's very possible that God, five, ten years from now, will use you to plant a church. And Jay's interpreting for me. Yeah. So we have that mentality and frame from the start that we are a church that plants churches. Yeah. So Jeremy was saying that there is even in here the seeds of future churches. So if there is a cluster of church further to the north, they may form the cell that becomes a new church. And again, I think that's healthy. And I for a number of reasons, I think when church historians uh, look back on the last 50 years, they'll view the megachurch as not the best decision that was ever made. And once governments take away tax exemption for church properties, once some of the other things that have allowed it begin to change, it's, it's going to become very hard for very massive churches. And I think it's actually going to be healthier for the church in America and elsewhere to be more in number, more embedded in neighborhood, and multiplying more rapidly rather than centralizing, 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 growing, growing, growing in the way that we've done for the last 50 years. Thank you for your attention, for your questions, your engagement. Come back next week for the third of three. There's not too many more of these. For we actually talked about, if I want to be a member, what does that mean and how do I do that? And then we'll ask some of the tough questions of, can I be a member of more than one church? What does it mean about transitioning a church? How do I, all that's part of next week's conclusion. And that's closing prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us in isolation. And that you love us too much to let us go on individualistically. You have something better for us. You have a family, a community, a body that we have a role in, a part in, that we're a member of. Help us to embrace that, to celebrate that, to see that as the privilege that it is. And Lord, for each one here, guide him or her to the church that you want them to be a part of. If it's Dina, wonderful. If it's another healthy church, wonderful. But compel each one to commit, to get involved, to get engaged, to use their gift to edify that particular body, to reach into that particular community. Help us to be the family you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.